welcome back to the Mintcast. My name is Alan McLeod and I'm senior staff writer and podcast producer here at Mint Press News. This show is made possible by supporters like you. We face widespread shadow banning and censorship across many platforms because of our independent anti-war journalism. And so we need support from people like you. We just started our annual funding drive and it would mean the world to us if you could help us financially. Remember, we can only do it with you. We cannot do it without you. So there should be a link to the Indiegogo annual funder drive down below if you're watching on YouTube or in the um, description if you're listening on audio. All right, today we've had a much requested guest joining us. If you haven't heard of him, you've either been living under a rock or you're under 30 and don't use TikTok. It is TikTok star James Raywald. James makes extraordinarily funny, clever and educational videos from a radical anti-imperialist perspective. And his shorts have been seen by probably tens of millions of people by now, including you, uh, if you keep watching. James, welcome to the show. Thanks, Alan. Appreciate the uh, generous introduction. Well, the pleasure's all mine here. Um, can I just start off by asking you to introduce yourself to the audience and ask how you got into this world? What's your story? Yeah, yeah. Um, well, firstly, thanks for having me on. Um, and yeah, I let's see where to start. Um, I guess I downloaded TikTok um, pretty much at the very beginning of when the pandemic really hit the US. So March 2020. And to rewind back further, I mean, <laughs> I was pretty much a hater. Like I, I got the TikTok, TikTok ads all the time, like YouTube, you know, pre-roll ads and Facebook ads and, and whatnot. I was just I was kind of cringe. And I was just like, uh, I don't know if this is for me. And then I just saw people doing like comedy skits. That was kind of reminiscent of like the Vine and it's uh, and early YouTube days. So I was like, oh, OK, I didn't know people like post comedy skits like this. So I you know, downloaded it when I was, you know, we were all in lockdown, um, originally just using it as a consumer um, and just finding a lot of really entertaining content. Um, I've been on, you know, all the different social media platforms pretty much. So there was something that piqued my interest for sure with TikTok, I think, you know, just the data scientists working behind the algorithm found something unique. And I thought it was really interesting. And my feed after adjusting with some time, found some 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 fun content. Uh, and, you know, I thought like, OK, I'll start posting my own stuff just to like make my friends laugh. I think my like third or fourth video like went viral. Um, and I just started to kind of build on that. And I think, you know, with everything that's happened in 2020 and beyond. Um, I think I sort of my political development was reflected in that of my content. So, you know, originally I just had kind of silly, more apolitical videos and uh, just sort of <laughs> just, I don't know, random, random bits. And it kind of developed into more of like a poignant, like uh, uh, analysis of just what's <laughs> wrong with the US and, you know, started to take on more of like an anti-imperialist character. Um, and that's kind of just been my goal, just to really develop my own political education and, um, also improve my production. Uh, but I guess to like bring it back to just my own sort of journey politically, um, I mean, I grew up in like a pretty conservative background, like both my parents are, you know, Republicans, but like in different ways. So I, I, you know, I, I grew up in the trenches, so to speak, I, I've <laughs> Have, have had early exposure to all the, you know, the Bill O'Reilly and Rush Limbaugh, you know, I, I'd hear all that stuff. I wasn't sipping the Kool-Aid, so to speak. I think I was just kind of, you know, a kid 
and didn't really care too much about that stuff. Um, but probably, you know, internalized it on some level, just like, you know, at least at the very minimum thinking like, oh, the U.S. is the good guys and, you know, they're fighting the bad guys and just very like simplistic surface level type of stuff. Um, so, you know, I, I grew up around that. And I think as I got older, especially going to college, started to, you know, care more. Um, I probably identified more as like a liberal back then. And then, um, you know, I don't know, progressive. Um, and I think really my first exposure to like left wing you know, anti-imperialist politics was through like the uh, sort of like human rights organizations uh, that sort of um, collaborated or hosted workshops with our like Filipino American Student Association uh, in my college. Um, and I think, you know, basically I started or I helped start the club there and it was a lot more like cultural and, you know, just try, trying to get people into the door. But eventually I started like meeting these other folks um, that were, you know, it was like the first time I really hear rhetoric that was like, you know, U.S. troops, like, get the fuck out of the Philippines. I was like, whoa, you know, I just never had exposure like that. Um, and I don't think it really uh, maybe like, I don't know, maybe it was like the language is harsh, even though it was true. So I think that kind of like pushed me away at first. Uh, but then I think eventually I started listening in more deeply. And especially with, you know, the 2016 election um, with Donald Trump, I think was like a huge wake up call. Like, OK, like half the country is OK with this type of vitriol. Um, and then sort of learning that, you know, <laughs> eventually like, oh, OK, Democrats do a lot of the same stuff that people are mad about, mad at Republicans for and start to go down that sort of rabbit hole and 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 learn that they're, you know, really just like the p political wings for the capitalist class. And, you know, and then with the time of course like 2020 and the blm movement just the severe police repression the mishandling of the pandemic um the inequalities that came with that globally um it, it just all became very very apparent that like i've been lied to my whole life um so a lot of unlearning had to be done um and you know i like the challenge of just trying to learn more and more about all this stuff all the history and theory um so that's kind of where i'm at now um, and it's, it's been fun trying to find ways to sort of, um, use all the political satire that I was really fond of, you know, uh, growing up, I think like, like the Colbert Report was like really funny to me when I was, you know, watching it when I was much younger, just seeing like somebody do like a satirical mock of like, you know, the right wing pundits that, you know, I grew up around. Uh, it was just like really funny and genius to me. Um, and then, of course, you know, it's sad when you when you see a lot of these these guys, uh, they don't really sort of point the target at, at uh, Democrats like, you know, there's no criticism from the left, um, except for like the very like, you know, obvious ones that are like barely even liberal, if you can call them that. Um, so, you know, just trying to like basically make the type of comedy I wish I could see on TV um or streaming or whatever um and i think tiktok's really rich in that and it's kind of kind of nice seeing you know all these like sort of small creators make amazing comedy and i'm just trying to fill in that gap with some more like uh you know a political leaning that's anti-imperialist yeah i mean you definitely do do that and so i really want people who haven't maybe haven't seen you or really don't realize that they have seen you to get a flavor of your work so i'm going to play a quick clip now so I'm going to share my screen and uh, we'll talk about it later. If you're just listening to the audio only, it's called CIA is funding the world's uh, terror groups. All right. So as I said, if you're listening to the audio only, we just watched a video called the CIA is funding the world's terror groups. Um, James, one of your 
most frequent targets uh, of your ire is the CIA. What's wrong with them? Aren't they all just intersectional Latinas with imposter syndrome? Aren't they all on our side? What's your beef with them? <laughs> yes, no, I I love the new CIA ads. They're they really lean into the identity politics. Uh, it feels like satire is dead when I watch the videos. Like you too can join the imperialist project, toppling governments. Um, but no, yeah, the, the CIA, it's, you know, they're basically gangsters for American capitalism. Um, and, you know, they've existed that way since 1947. The U.S. has operated um, in the same way the CIA has, you know, before the CIA existed as well. But, you know, it's it's some of the stuff you read about them. It's just like it looks like it's out of a science fiction novel, um, but, you know, it's all very real. So there's a lot of material for for some great videos there. And that video I just did, I mean, that one was fun because I, I feel like I had to like cut down stuff because there was like stuff I wanted to add, but didn't really fit to like the cutting of the music. And, you know, I had so much time in that song, um, you know, um, like, for example, like the golden um, triangle, you know, as well as the golden crescent. So the, you know, uh, being complicit in drug trafficking from uh afghanistan um as well as you know laos and you know really just more of a byproduct of the u.s wanting to you know engage in anti-communist um you know efforts abroad um and if that means you know funding these you know mercenaries or paramilitaries with um you know opium production or or, or cocaine or, or whatever um you know they can look past it um and um you know we saw that in the case with the vietnam war we saw that with the, the war in afghanistan um <laughs> i mean so much that they even have their own wikipedia article on uh, <laughs> uh drug trafficking allegations <laughs> um with the cia so yeah real real dirty history yeah i mean i didn't think of it like that but yeah you packed in so much into that video i think you were referencing <clears throat> Gary Webb, the San Jose uh, Mercury uh, reporter who broke the story that uh, the CIA was involved in the crack, the crack epidemic in the 1980s, whereby the U.S. either uh, allowed this to happen or was actively participating in flooding, particularly black neighborhoods with crack cocaine in the 1980s. And they were doing that to basically fund right-wing death squads all over Central America who were tearing up the place carrying out massacres and trying to overthrow leftist governments. And so it is really extraordinary to see this organization trying to present themselves as like the friends of progressive movements and using this kind of language. In fact, I think it was partially down to me that those sorts of uh, woke CIA ads really went viral. I was on the CIA website a couple of years ago, and uh, I was trying to click on a video and it wasn't really playing very well there. And then I pressed it and it took me to YouTube and it took me to an unlisted playlist of like uh, all of these ads. And I was like, oh, hey, it's this woke CIA ad again. But there was actually a list of 12 of them there. And I was like, holy shit, they've made so many of these. It's unbelievable. And I made this master cut and stuck it out on Twitter. And I couldn't believe the amount of uh, energy and uptake it got. I really made, I made it to be like, hey, isn't it absolutely ridiculous that this organization that goes around overthrowing governments, dealing drugs, killing foreign leaders is now pretending to be like the sort of liberal progressive uh, institution that will help these people? 
But I actually got retweeted by people like uh, Ted Cruz and Donald Trump Jr., who really signal boosted the entire thing. And their whole take on this woke CIA thing is, we told you the CIA are a bunch of radical leftist Marxists who are trying to overthrow America and install the gay agenda. That was basically their take on it. And it's just extraordinary to see how people can have like these completely differing views of this institution. Yeah, no, it's... God, that's why it's like really hard because you got to be like nuanced and you don't want to like add to the noise because like, <laughs> you know, if you if you if, if you're in left wing spaces, like I'm sure, you know, you see the memes like people talk about corporations changing their profile logo to, a, you know, a, something to celebrate pride. Um, and, you know, these left leftists understand like they don't actually care. It's just recognizing like a market for profit um whereas like the you know right wingers are just like on their like anti-woke hysteria and just like this weird proto-fascist type of you know like they're they're trying to make everybody gay it's like no they just like want you to buy their stuff it's not that crazy <laughs> um and it's funny because yeah you see it's a new heights now it's like with this the cia like pride posts i mean like the fbi making posts celebrating mlk is like wild <laughs> <laughs> and, and then like Lockheed Martin, they had like a, uh, I don't know if you saw that they had a pride float at, oh, yeah, it, sure. at DC, uh, which was just so sad. It's like, guys, why? Uh, and then like, <laughs> I think like Miami celebrated Black History Month with like a police cruiser that like had like Black History Month written on the side. And it, I was just like, oh, God. So, yeah, just some liberal dystopia stuff. But yeah, it, it, it does suck because like, um, you know, I, I, I hope people can like you know, look at this stuff for the facade of that it is, you know, it's it's just the same way that like, in the, you know, uh, 70s and 80s, when black people started getting featured more in advertisements, you know, if we had the same sort of like, current of political atmosphere today, people would be like, Oh, it's woke, they're trying to make like spread, you know, like, black people are like, no, they're just like, recognizing buying power in this market. And like, let, you know, racist people are starting to be like, Oh, we can sell to these guys. Um, it, they don't actually like care about representation or equality or anything. So yeah, it's, it sucks. Cause I, I, I love to make jokes about like just the sort of liberal shenanigans. Um, but then, like you said, you look at people like Ted Cruz and you know, Tucker Carlson or whoever, and they, you know, are ready just to go on some homophobic, transphobic rant. Um, so yeah, you, you gotta be careful on how to, and I guess that's kind of why I love about the, these making these videos. Cause you get to sort of hopefully provide a, a good way to look at it. Yeah, I guess as a radical, you've got to be careful when you attack Democrats too much in case you start bringing in Republicans and you're like, I don't remember asking you a damn thing, MF, or I'm not on your <laughs> side, you know? I don't like them either. And exactly. Yeah, it's like uh, when all these groups, like as you said, Lockheed Martin or the CIA put out all of this completely in, you know, insincere stuff about supporting gay rights, there are there's kind of like a fringe of people who are like, oh, this just proves this is all just, you know, one big agenda or, or whatever. And yeah, I think you ought to be careful to sort of separate the the message and the messenger, I guess. That's what I'd say. I mean, because I basically endorse all those of those things. And by those things, I don't mean like overthrowing foreign governments or anything. I mean, like, you know, equal rights for women and, you know, LGBT uh, minorities. Right. So, yeah, you got to be careful in, in that sense. Yeah. Yeah. I feel like that's. I always feel this pressure when I'm making fun of like liberals or Democrats in my videos that I got to like in the same sentence, make fun of Republicans just to like, let them know like this, you're, you're, you're part of this problem. Like, 
yeah. yeah, absolutely. We always say at an impress that, you know, uh, I guess uh, whether it's Team Blue or Team Red who's in charge, a lot of the time the policies don't actually change because uh, both of these parties are bought and paid for by the same giant corporations and same individuals and institutions which fund the permanent war economy, uh, both parties, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera, the media too. And, you know, we know who they are. It's Wall Street, it's big tech, it's the oil industry, it's, it's you know, big manufacturing, et cetera. It's basically the people with all the power and money in society. And I often wonder if um, we might actually be better off if we had a system where politicians would have to wear their political sponsors on their shirts and their sleeves like NASCAR drivers do. Maybe, <laughs> yes. maybe we'd be in a better position. I don't know. <laughs> yeah, you know, I want more transparency into the uh, which imperialist lapdog I get to vote in. <laughs> All right. Your next video that I wanted to show everyone is one that's close to my heart because it's specifically about media, which is kind of my wheelhouse. Let's take a look at this. It's called the US Propaganda Machine Explained. All right. <clears throat> so in that video, uh, I'm just really impressed with the insane amount of work and research that's gone into those clips that just last a few seconds, basically. You've pretty much summed up my PhD thesis in less than a minute. Uh, what I really love about it is how you illustrate to what extent advertisers really call the shots in corporate media. Uh, do you want to elaborate in words what you're trying to get across in this clip? Yeah, yeah. Um, I guess like the big, uh, I mean, I, I definitely pulled from different areas that inspired me, including your writing um, for this video. Um, but I know one big one that I remember seeing when I was young was... Uh, it was like a SNL skit, like in like the late '90s, I think. It was called like Mediaopoly. I don't know if you've ever seen it, uh, but if you haven't, check it out. Uh, I think Adam McKay might have been involved in it, but I'm surprised it even aired because it took like a direct shot at like General Electric and NBC, um, and it was just it kind of explained that whole sort of media landscape and the sort of ecosystem of. You know, these these are big corporations that have their own interests, as well as advertisers that they, um, you know, need to make sure they're making a media reporting environment that's conducive to their profits. Um, and I think that video was like a big, like, revelation for me. I was like, oh, shit, like, yeah, I can see why this is not <laughs> a good way to have an independent press um, and earnest journalism. Um and I think also like the, you know, just I haven't read it, but like I've seen like videos of, like Michael Parenti talking about this topic. Um, he, he had that book, what's it called? Inventing Reality. And then like Noam Chowski's like uh, Manufacturing Consents, like probably the more like original one that I think a lot of people are familiar with. Uh, so just kind of reading about those books and hearing them speak at like different events and whatnot, like just on like YouTube videos, sort of explain some real world examples like you know in the at least in like the 80s 90s like the way the automotive industry um had a big impact and like what kind of stories could be told and what stories wouldn't be told um so yeah i mean you know these these uh corporations whether it's uh you know warner brothers discovery who on cnn or or the you know fox or any of these guys, um, the the big handful of them, since there used to be like what like fifty companies back in like the seventies that uh, comprised like the majority of popular media, and now it's just like five. I mean, the, their their whole revenue model is built on ad revenue. Um, they have to maintain relationships as broadcasters with all these different 
advertisers and the ones that are able to spend the most are going to be the biggest companies. Um, and you have everybody from fossil fuels to um, insurance companies to uh, pharmaceutical companies to, you know, automotive, everything, uh, meatpacking plants, you know, Kellogg's, you know, whatever. So it's like literally just like the the largest corporations keep these uh, news channels afloat and they don't want to, you know, they got to play a delicate balance of, you know, they want to ruffle their feathers. And, you know, I think in this video, I wanted to help explain that and, um, you know, just demonstrate that they do feel the pinch and the pressure to make sure they don't touch stories that are too hot. Um, and even if they are able to talk about them, they got to use certain language and sort of, uh, be very exonerative with, you know, um, state authorities or, or corporate interests. Um, and I, I kind of wanted to, so like taking that mediopoly video, it was, you know, a little, a little outdated, um, you know, from the nineties. So I wanted to update it and just have all that stuff they talked about with, you know, a, the um sort of i guess there's like three things i really wanted to address in the video like one just the fact that like you know you hear all these people like oh there's like a state-run media like here in this x country they're undemocratic whatever i, I want to prove like yes the u.s does the exact same thing and not only within its borders but all around the world so i want to show that there's like u.s funded broadcasters and ngos and you know the um sort of touch like the nonprofit industrial complex and just kind of briefly just pepper in like no the u.s does this everywhere um, and then secondly, um, you know, uh, corporate interests interfering with uh, being able to um, have earnest uh, journalism that's, you know, in the interests of the working class. And then thirdly, uh, social media companies. So I want to kind of dive into these social media companies, showing how they've been used to, you know, influence public opinion, um, you know, against their own interests, um, as well as like just how, like, as you reported, um, that there's people within the intelligence community and national security um, that are getting hired into these companies and key positions. They're really pretty much following the same playbook that these uh, news companies have done for years, where they bring in these experts and analysts um, from the national security state and intelligence, military officials. Um, and now they're just doing the same thing again with social media companies. And it's just hilarious to me that these people start, you know, and if there's criticisms to make about TikTok, but it's just hilarious that these people start talking about TikTok and criticizing it without, you know, even batting an eye when it comes to their own media um, or their, their um, you know, social media companies and, and news corporations based in the U.S. Um, so, you know, I wanted to address those three things and, and make it fun with with music. <laughs> As you can probably tell, my videos are very musically <laughs> driven. So I, I, I like to do that. It makes it a little bit more engaging and hopefully easier to digest. Yeah, for sure. I mean, certainly much more easy to digest than like uh, books and stuff that I've tried to write about it. Um, but yeah, I guess uh, like <laughs> in the 1970s, it came out that the CIA had managed to insert hundreds of its operatives into newsrooms across the country, or uh, they had a deal with like certain reporters. And that even goes on to this day. People like Ken Delanian was outed when he was at the LA Times for sending his stories to the CIA before they published them so they could edit them. And instead of getting fired and kicked out of journalism, he now got promoted as now on television as a, as a reporter. But I think nowadays that when you think about how the media works, uh, it's no longer newsrooms that really call the shots. It's actually the people who are tweaking the algorithms over in uh, you know uh, Oakland or San Francisco or wherever their headquarters are that are really 
kind of deciding what people see and what people don't see across the entire world for billions of people. It's that incredible choke point in our media that people don't even talk about. Um, talking about like uh, algorithms and Silicon Valley, you're certainly not averse to the classic left, uh, leftist tactic, which is the old wall of text uh, stuck in there. Um, I wonder if people stopping and going back and reading carefully the sources and all the stuff in your video actually helps you algorithmically. What do you think? Uh, do you have any indication as to how many people will really follow up on all the information you provide? Uh, you're clearly trying to be educational and informing as well as entertaining. Yeah, yeah. It's uh, <laughs> it's always a struggle, like trying to like hit that balance of like, do I provide more like extra information at the risk of making the video less like concise and easy to watch and more of a, a drain and a time suck versus like trying not to sacrifice like thoroughness for like brevity's sake. Um, so I, I try to try to balance that. My most recent video, I, I think I definitely leaned more into the wall of text and it was like, I don't even know if this is ironic or <laughs> I was like, whatever, you know, because originally I was just going to like, I was like, you know what? I'm just not going to put any of this. They can just Google these things. And then I was like, you know what? I'll put it in here. And then they could pause if they want, or they could just, you know, watch it one full run through and they come back to if they want. Uh, so that, it's it's interesting trying to figure out like, like, for example, the CIA video, very like just straight up labels, just like keep it simple. And I, I like those. I like doing those kind of videos too. Uh, but of course, you know, you start to uh, leave it up to the, the user to try and find the right info, with digging through all the you know, bourgeois sort of institutional sourced stuff uh, can be a little bit of a challenge. So trying to offer a bit more direction um, in these cases can go a long way. Um, but yeah, it's it's nice to put that those details out there. I, I've been curious too, like how many people have really followed up on those sources. And a lot, a lot of the times, like I'm just trying to like spark interest. Like I, I you know, I obviously don't see my videos as any substitute for, you know, digger, di uh, uh, digging deeper and, you know, actually doing the the research and reading and you know watching you know good documentaries whatever it might be um so hopefully i'm able to spark interest and i i, will, I like the idea of providing some like some hard facts and like just some some numbers that kind of pique people's interest like oh i didn't know that like i should i should look that up i didn't learn about that in school or see that in the news um I, i've even tried to go on like google trends and seeing if there's like a peak like when my like i don't know, i think when the cia video like took off i was like oh let's see Let's see if I uh, tip the scale on a national level. And I think I've seen like little bumps like on Google Trends and I have like a marketing background. So this stuff's like, you know, interesting to me. Um, but yeah, I mean, it's it's cool hearing, especially just through the comments, you know, um, people are are nice and like, oh, I didn't know that. Like, that's fucked up. So, <laughs> yeah, I, I would hope so. I would hope people do do a little more digging and hopefully are a bit more inspired to to learn why the world is the way it is. Yeah, I guess uh, we're all kind of slaves to the algorithm nowadays. One thing I have noticed that's a good thing about the algorithm is that YouTube comments are suddenly much more positive and friendly and a nicer place than they used to be. Before, like <laughs> if you go back like five or 10 years, it was just like racist stuff about, you know, the New World Order and the lizard people or something <laughs> like coming to get you or just people hysterically attacking you, claiming that you were either working for Mossad or Iran or something or some weird stuff like that. I mean, yeah, I think we all have to think about algorithms a lot. And I suspect you do as well. I mean, was that a choice, for instance? Uh, I noticed you use a lot of like uh, Nerf guns and stuff in your videos for to stimulate violence or like ketchup for blood or something. Is that what you're you're going for there? You have to like 
be absolutely clear that you don't want to trip up the algorithm. It's yeah, it's it almost became that way later because like I, I just had them and I was like because uh our my my partner's brother had like Nerf guns and we I was like oh okay they're just sitting around um and it's the beginning of the pandemic so I started using them uh in the videos and then later I was like maybe I should just use like a real gun and I was like wait I don't think the algorithm's gonna like that um so it's kind of it's kind of doubled for that reason and I guess to go back to the to earlier question in regards to the algorithm yeah I mean it's it's interesting trying to figure out what works I mean it's so nebulous right like uh, whether it's TikTok Instagram YouTube Twitter um you know it, it's just like there's no definite science I mean I've gathered like you know for the most part a lot of it just comes down to like the um the percentage of video watch like people who just watch the whole video like that's great you know people who skip it in the first like two seconds like obviously that's not good um so i try to make videos that like hopefully speak to the algorithm while also speaking to the intended audience um and it can be hard because sometimes you're going for the algorithm but then it's like it doesn't maybe maybe you're not you don't have the audience in mind or vice versa um so yeah, I mean it's 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 definitely tricky. And with the Nerf guns, yeah, I mean it's it's been fun. Like just like now, I'm like just I'm so deep in it. I'm like I'm gonna buy another Nerf gun <laughs> just because like <laughs> it'll be fun. Um, but yeah, it's 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 interesting because like TikTok's a lot more um, a lot more sensitive with stuff. Like I've noticed, like I've had videos that only get banned on TikTok, um, and then my bans usually and suspensions or whatnot um, or videos just getting taken down on like instagram and twitter is usually for like music copyright violations um youtube I, I don't know if i've had any big issues on youtube but tiktok like tiktok didn't like me waterboarding myself they they <laughs> they did not like me waterboarding myself they also said i was like promoting like drugs uh when i was talking about the cia promoting drugs i'm like i'm not the cia i'm just like reporting on what they did uh, <laughs> but i guess the the algorithm you know it's a little hard to tell the difference with those things so um you know the the, the conspiracy theorists in me thinks like oh they're maybe they're trying to take me down but you know i, I don't really know it's I've, I've seen a lot of videos just get taken down for like literally no reason and then like seeing the most like misogynist video you've ever seen just get like just go super viral and not get taken down it's still up and it's like okay so there's uh, there's definitely some work that needs to be done um on uh the content moderation side um and just the r d that goes into developing it i mean i know they've been trying to work on different ai technologies that sort of power those content moderation solutions but it's just you know it's uh, obviously coupled with you know actual <laughs> cia agents and <laughs> whatnot trying to um sort of censor um things that go against the u.s interests um it's you know it's tricky it's nebulous you're left to suspicion on why your video gets taken down um but you know so far i consider myself lucky my most of my videos have been managed to make the rounds Nice. Yeah. I mean, I guess whenever you make a new account on any of these uh, social networks nowadays, whether, or, you know, social media like Instagram or TikTok or YouTube or whatever, I mean, you'll just be deluged by like horrible reactionary content from the get go, whether it's Jordan Peterson or Ben Shapiro or Andrew Tate videos, or you're just constantly being suggested that you watch another PragerU video and you're like, I don't care. I don't want this stuff. And it doesn't matter. And I often think that that's probably like dumbing us down as a society, not only because we're being fed this drivel, but also because people are really dissuaded from making like longer, more high quality stuff because they know they're never going to get the views that way. Yeah, I I can't stress enough how bad the YouTube algorithm is. Like just like 
politically, like topically, it's just like you get like just the most like like you said. I mean, the Jordan Pearson like it's become a cliche at this point. It's like Ben Shapiro owns feminists, and it's just like like tailored for like you know thirteen year old boys, and it's just very like and it dominates the search results. I mean, you you look up like I don't know, you look up transgender or you look up you know feminist or whatever. Like you you know all the reactionary stuff bubbles to the top. Um, all this you know this algorithm really tail um. Uh, favors all the you know fear driven hate driven stuff um and yeah i like you said it, it might incentivize people to kind of lean more into like that type of content since that's what gets views um and yeah I, yeah I, to your earlier comment with the youtube comments <laughs> yeah i remember back in the day they're pretty awful some like live leak level types of <laughs> community <laughs> engagement <laughs> yeah Oh man, you just reminded me of Live League. There's this somewhere that I haven't thought about for a couple of years for sure. That was where yeah. the too hot for YouTube clips ended up, I think. Yeah, I feel like there's like a generation of people that just like got exposed to Live Leak and like just didn't know how to deal with it and then it disappeared. Now everyone's like, that was real, right? That happened. I, I remember seeing like some crazy great like I don't know why our, I think our like social studies teacher in high school showed us that. And I remember seeing just like war footage that like I've never seen before. And it was just like seeing like 50 cal snipers you know u.s uh troops like blowing off the heads of like taliban i'm like holy shit like i've never seen this before youtube obviously isn't gonna allow this um i forgot what happened to live lake i think they, they got taken down at some point i don't know yeah i don't know that hasn't crossed my mind for quite a while <laughs> yeah well glad i could bring it down and trip down memory lane <laughs> all right this next clip i want to show you is how would i describe it i guess you're giving a little history of like uh, how the world works, basically, at least since 1945. It's called The U.S. Was Inspo. Let's uh, watch that now. All right. This little clip we watched called The U.S. Was Inspo, I think it's a great uh, introduction to imperialism and how it works. What I get from it, I think you're stating here is basically that the United States took over Europe's colonies after World War II, and that's how the world is really structured right now, right? Yeah, I think, I think that's part of it. It was like a... When I when I look at the video, some sometimes part of me feels a little like it's a little disjointed because I'm like trying to talk about so many things. Uh, but I think like looking back, I wanted to like yes talk about that, um, and just like you know just challenge the narrative also just around like the U.S. was like the good guys before and after World War II and obviously during and it you know that's it and like it was just there to to defeat the Nazis and Imperial Japan. So I wanted to kind of challenge the narrative and show like, okay, there's like, <laughs> US was, it's not a great place. Um, and so do that. Uh, and then also like just talk about the colonization of Philippines. Um, I'm half Filipino. So like that topic's, you know, obviously near to me. And I wanted to sort of, um, you know, explore that history. And then I found that like a good, uh, fun way to connect that topic with like the World War II topic. I remember learning years ago about um, what's the name of the book? It's like Hitler's American model, I think, um, where it talks about uh, Nazi. Well, in this case, like lawyers, but yeah, I mean, through history, like Nazi lawyers, scientists, um, you know, officials looked at the U.S. as sort of this like model um, to both learn from, uh, to emulate, as well as things to avoid in you know the interests of Nazi Germany. Um, you know, that it's no secret that like eugenicists in Nazi Germany were fond of what the U.S. had been doing to black, Hispanic and, and Native Americans, especially in California. 
um, you know, looking at the sort of anti-miscegenation laws. I mean, no, no place was like really ad- as advanced um, and like granular as the U.S. I mean, it obviously exists in like other places like in, in Europe and South Africa, but like the U.S. had these different state level anti-miscegenation laws basically saying like X group can't marry Y group or Z group or whatever, which translate usually just to like white people and black people can't get married um and like native americans uh, as well as different asian groups or even pacific islander groups um so yeah getting lost in that and reading about like how the nazis took very careful note of that when crafting the nuremberg laws which was just something that i feel like you know a lot of americans learned through the school curriculum but the conveniently left out part is that this was modeled directly after what the u.s had been doing um and of course the nuremberg laws uh you know uh targeted uh jewish people and then it was later expanded into romani and black people um but those laws passed in 1935 um also were modeled after like the the (laughs) in in a fucked up way looked at the one drop rule in the u.s where just one drop of black blood would define you as a black person uh and even the nazis were like okay let's that's a little too much we're gonna do if you have one grandparent that's jewish (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> it was just it was like crazy, right? And um, you know, so just like learning about all that and specifically with anti-miscegenation laws, how uh they would look at you know, people like Puerto Ricans and Filipinos who were in US colonies at that time. Um, you know, Puerto Rico still. Um and uh, you know, it, it became a way to really uh subjugate people into like second class citizenship, um, which the Nazis took keen interest in. And um I thought that was really interesting. And I started to see the similarities. They were uh, Filipinos and Puerto Ricans. They can vote in uh, national elections, still can't uh, in the case of Puerto Rico. Um, and it just became amazing like the, that this set of laws that you know prevented marriage, but also stripped them of their citizenship and the right to vote were things that were already in place in the US. Um, so I want to sort of, you know, you know, challenge the the narrative of like the US <laughs> just being this like wholesome freedom fighter during world war ii rather than just being you know uh getting caught up in a war later on and the soviet union obviously doing the heavy lifting there um and you know talk also about the colonization of the philippines and in order to talk about that i mean i have to talk about just the wider history of colonialism and imperialism it, it became it's just so intrinsically tied up uh in world affairs that's like to talk about the colonization of the Philippines, you have to talk about um, you know manifest destiny, and you have to talk about settler colonialism. You have to talk about this sort of inter-imperialist conflict of the U.S., France, U.K., Germany, Netherlands. You know, all sort of uh, trying to colonize the world. Um, so to talk about that, you suddenly have to explain that history. Um, so I think that's really what I wanted to try and accomplish, uh, and just show that like this is you know the history of colonization. And this led, you know, eventually to World War II, where we started to see a, a, a new ch- a change in who the hegemon would be. That is the U.S., um, of course, you know, after World War II, um, becoming the sort of leader uh, in um, all the imperialist states, uh, U.S. companies coming in and taking over where the, the British and French and et cetera have been. Um, so, yeah, trying to condense and distill all that into a quick video was hopefully what I, I, I managed to do there. Um, Oh, for sure. For sure. Yeah. I guess if you really want to understand and if you're really genuine about looking at things like Puerto Rico and Philippines and Guam and even earlier with things like Cuba and Manifest Destiny, 
you really have to start looking at as the US as an infant empire and an empire that wanted to expand and grow. And that's something I really like about the channel, the Empire Files, which they really take as their absolute beginning basis of it, which is you have to look at the US in the framework of an empire. And at the end of World War II, the United States literally had 50% of the world's wealth. Think about Europe and Asia were just destroyed. Um, they only had 4% of the world's population in the US, though. And these planners in Washington were meeting and coming up with strategies called like Grand Area Doctrine, whereby they said, well, you know, the Nazis or the Soviets, they'll have their little part of Europe and maybe Central Asia, but we're going to take the Grand Area. And that meant taking over Africa, taking over much of Asia, Latin America, which was to them the US's backyard already, which basically meant that they saw the United States as having this global empire. And that didn't really last very, very long because China came along, the communists in the late 40s kicked the US out. A lot of people don't know the United States invaded and occupied China with a very large army for four years uh, until 1949. They were kicked out unceremoniously. And if you read the documents, all these guys in Washington are talking about the loss of China, the loss of China. We lost it. And, you know, recriminations, finger pointing was going on all over the place. But you can only really lose something that you think that you own. And so it kind of allows people to see into their mentality that they thought they really do own the art in the world. Uh, and, you know, maybe when the Soviet Union uh, fell apart in the 80s and 90s, the US, there was this sort of sense that this was the end of history and the United States was going to be top dog forever. But I feel like in the last 10 years or so, US power has really slipped. I mean, do you agree with that, um, that US dominance in terms of military, economic, culture, kind of on the wane? And to what extent do you think that's correct? Yeah, I mean, it definitely feels like an empire sort of uh, crumbling. <laughs> it's, you know, the the uh, its status as the, the hegemon of the world is, is being challenged. Um, and whether that's, you know, from like communist uh, uh, efforts or just the uh, competing capitalist forces, um, the, the U S is sometimes seems like it's waning. Um, and, you know, hopefully, you know, regardless of what happens, it, it, it creates conditions where people can actually, uh, you know, the working class can actually rise up. Um, but yeah, it's, it's, it's also interesting, you know, back to your point with like China and, and, uh, the Soviet union. I mean, it's, it's just funny how this stuff's always left out, right. Uh, the, the American and like European interests in these places, they don't talk about the, um, all the Western nations and and Japan in China prior to the revolution. They don't talk about all the European interests, the the, the French and the Germans and the British in in Russia before the the Bolsheviks. They don't talk about the land ownership in in Cuba prior to the the Cuban Revolution and and the you know U.S. backed dictator Batista there. Um, this stuff always gets uh, conveniently left out. Um, but you know, back to your later point. I mean, this is all just a sort of maintain this image of uh this sort of democracy when it's really just a, an empire and now it seems like it's sort of flailing so i don't know we'll see what happens <laughs> yeah we live in interesting times i guess um yeah. the last uh, clip i did want to talk about i wanted to go back to the cia because i really like this uh little video you made it's called uh, cia history across latin america the middle east africa asia and so on and it kind of sums up how the united states has been able to uh, exert its control uh, over the rest of the world like we were talking about for the last few minutes let's uh, just very quickly see that 
Okay, so if you like that video, you can find it at James Raywald's TikTok, at Instagram. You're across pretty much every social media platform, aren't you? Yeah. <laughs> nice one. All right. So uh, what I really like about that video is kind of like how you link the refugee crisis in places like the U.S. southern border directly to U.S. actions abroad. Uh, could you tell us a bit more about that, how you see these things as being connected? Yeah, yeah. I mean, obviously, the world's so vast, and there's different uh, ways the U.S. has uh, been involved abroad. Uh, but it's just like one of those things that's always conveniently left out of the conversation when we talked about, um, you know, whether it's refugees or, or migrant uh, workers or, or migrants, any any form of immigrant. Um, you know, there's uh, you really got to think about it as like forced migration. I mean, these people are leaving because of, you know, different reasons, um, namely imperialism, uh, the unequal exchange set up between the U.S. and its, um, you know, other allies uh, against or with the global south. Um, you know, we, all these things are connected. And, you know, maybe in the past, you know, it's a bit more stark, right? Like in the video, like like just uh, overthrowing governments and, and things like that. Um, and the U.S. still does stuff like that. And, I'm, you know, that's just like what's been confirmed. Um, but it's also just the the idea of like free trade, right? And in, in hard quotes, um, just the sort of unequal exchange that is exploitative um, and forces people to leave their homes. Um, and the CIA very much plays a huge role in that. Um, and looking through history, I mean, it's just such a long list of coups and uh, uh, coup attempts and uh, all sorts of interventions, invasions and whatnot. And I mean, Latin America has been a huge victim of that. And, uh, um, you know, that stuff always gets left out of the narrative conveniently when we talk about, um, you know, uh, providing asylum to people fleeing poverty and violence. Um, and then even if you don't believe in the economic um, aspects or you just aren't really in tune with the idea of imperialism um, or capitalist imperialism, um, it's like, you know, stuff like arms. I mean, you look at like we talk of literally about places in Central America, you know, Trump obviously like saying these people can't come here. I mean, Kamala Harris saying the same thing when she visited. To folks in this region who are thinking about making that dangerous trek to the United States-Mexico border, do not come. Do not come. You know, it's a, a bipartisan uh, position, but um you can look at like the loose arms the illegal arms they're all but made the, the majority comes from american manufacturers also like the arms deals that you know that the u.s sells to police and military forces in these countries um but we just you know we don't seem to care about that it's just about the people fleeing the violence there um so yeah the cia has been a huge uh, facilitator of that violence um in every part of the world it's kind of the same in europe actually um there's a similar refugee crisis happening with people from Africa and West Asia like, who are trying to escape uh, their desperate situation. Um, and it's been headline news for years and years, and it's actually sprung whole big nativist right-wing parties across the continent. But in the entirety of the discourse, we're never asking where are these people coming from and why. We're never asking why is it they're coming from Iraq, Syria, Afghanistan, countries like that, and not countries like, for instance, Jordan or Saudi Arabia. 
which are nations who have not been blown to smithereens by NATO in the last few years. You know, I mean, there seems to be some sort of link here between having your country just destroyed to the point where it doesn't have a functioning government or like a sewage system or transport or any sort of, you know, hope of a better future and people fleeing their lives for their lives. But that's never really talked about in our media. So to the point where we're basically discouraged from even questioning what our militaries are doing all over the world, because that just wouldn't be good for profit, I guess. Yeah. Yeah. The <laughs> popular media, not not known for really getting to the root of problems and uh, just keeping <laughs> yeah, it very surface true. level. So <laughs> yeah, that's the unfortunate truth. All right. I've got uh, one more question for you today. It's a bit more generic uh, on a different topic. Um, I feel like the satire you do seemingly as a one-man show and are able to put out is just so much more cutting and relevant than a lot of the satire you'll see on television nowadays. Uh, what do you think about the state of political comedy or political satire today? Yeah, I mean, it's a good question. Like, I, <laughs> I wish there was better stuff out there. Like, I'm not even trying to sound cocky. It's just like, I want to see like, you know, socialist and team imperialist, communists, even anarchists, whatever uh creators out there like it's it's just like when you look at like political satire it's just like very very obviously dominated by you know liberals and maybe people that maybe even like i don't know rad libs or whatever you want to call it or they can kind of poke fun at themselves um but you don't really hear a lot of like humor coming from the left and then when you do it's hard because sometimes it's like preachy or just not funny um so i, I would love to see like more of that stuff i mean i, I try to think of like uh like good example like a uh, parasite is, i know that's like kind of a commonly cited one but and it's not really like overtly you know uh socialist or communist but it plays into like you know the, the class elements in a class society um you know it bong jun ho is is you know he doesn't shy away from that stuff and i feel like he's a great he's a good example of that boots riley is probably like the only really big like self like self-described communist that's like making like you know comedy satire entertainment um that i can think of offhand i'm sure there's a bunch i'm forget i'm forgetting but um you know it's, it's tough to find you can look through history and find a lot a lot of you know directors that are you know self-described marxists and whatnot um but you know it's 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 hard yeah i i look at like the comedy central guys and adult swim and it's like he it's tough because you know i don't know how far you can make it when you're trying to do anti-imperialist comedy um you know when you're trying to work with these big networks and studios and streaming companies um but i would like to see people push the envelope you know i i if they can make something funny enough and get the message to sort of be addressed um in a way that doesn't uh get in the way of the short-term profit seeking of these companies you know why not you know i i i, I see like all these liberal and conservative co comedians and just hope that like there can be some more principled um anti-imperialists entering the same space uh because it gets a little tiring watching the same type of stuff yeah what i got from mm, listening to that sort of milieu is that a lot of comedy writers are very scared to you know go after one team if they're on the other team or sorry they will only go after one team if they're on the other team you know they're satirizing trump or whatever because they're on team blue but they won't even pitch a joke in the writer's room you know, laughing at Hillary Clinton or Joe Biden or whoever. Um, I remember, yeah, I think the manufacture of consent even works here. I remember when, for instance, Michael Che, who I suspect has quite radical politics, he is named after Che Guevara after all, 
he got in a lot of trouble for doing a joke about Israeli apartheid, and he was, you know, chastened by all these groups. I think that must have yeah. a big effect on you, right? Like this flack. Oh yeah, yeah. It's it's like I mean, especially like, you know, being anti-Zionist is is deep on pop. Being anti-imperialist, just being a a, a a Marxist, like that's like tough to do. I mean, obviously, there's like material reasons for that in the past, like with like the McCarthyist era and Red Scare, and like all those. Hollywood people getting blacklisted and you know all that stuff. So you know, I think the message has been made clear that like that type of stuff isn't welcome in Hollywood, um, whether that's just from the general public or the, the powers that be. Um, so yeah, it's it's uh, it's really tough, and it, it's you know forces people like like Men Press and and myself and you know other whether it's podcasters or or, or um, comedians or whatever. Um, you you don't really have a billionaire funding your stuff <laughs> so it becomes very tough um trying to sort of challenge the status quo you don't really you're not bankrolled like that um and it's just you know unpopular with uh the average consumer sometimes oh yeah for sure we certainly at Mintpress do not have any billionaire backers or huge state funders we're operating on a shoestring so i will put out another plug for our annual uh, funding drive on Indiegogo. Please do support us if you are in a position to do so economically. If you're not, you can still help us by liking our streams or giving us a five-star review. Um, but yeah, we've been listening to James Raywell today. James, uh, where can people follow you if they want to hear more from you? Yeah, um, you can follow me on my Patreon or any pretty much any social media. So I'm, my user is j r e h w a l d one five on instagram and tiktok or just my full name james rewald one word on uh twitter um or youtube um so feel feel free to follow me there or or follow me on patreon support me on patreon um and i'll be pumping out some more videos soon that's great thank you james rewald